All right, if you guys have your Bibles, open with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 26 for tonight. So once you turn there, um, why don't we stand and just uh, out of reverence for the reading of God's word, let's stand together and I'll read our passage. Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we look into your word now, um, help us to have humble hearts. Help us to have uh, sober-mindedness just as we receive this truth um, from you. Help us to see that it is your kindness to us. Um, to show us even the ugly parts of our hearts and help us to turn and to see Christ um, in response. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can take a seat. I want to start with a question and just kind of get you guys thinking about something. When's the last time that you got really angry? When's the last time that you got really angry? Uh, What happened? What did you do? Maybe it was saying something regrettable, uh, saying something very hurtful to someone, words you wish that you could take back, maybe even, even after the moment they came out of your mouth. Uh, maybe it was slamming a door, breaking something, raising your voice, uh, dangerously tailgating someone who cut you off, ending a relationship. Maybe it was even physically hurting someone. Many of us can relate to these intense, heated moments, and in those moments it feels like you were literally consumed by your anger. Maybe others of us, we express anger in other ways. So it's not like a 10 out of 10 intensity of anger like we just described, but there's like the 3 out of 10, right? Like the, the low simmer. And rather than blowing up like a volcano, like hot and explosive, you are more like an iceberg. You are cold. Uh, you're, you're hardened. You are slowly moving away. It's, your anger is mostly hidden. Right? It, it's, it's, you see the, the part of it, but it's mostly on the inside. Your anger takes the form of a cold shoulder or biting sarcasm, just detachment, uh, passive aggressiveness, a low-grade irritation. Um, in David Pallison's book, Good and Angry, the book that we just gave away, the second chapter, it is titled, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And it's the shortest chapter ever written because it's only one word and the chapter just says, yes, you do have a serious problem with anger. And for us, we might think like, yeah, anger is serious. You think of the destructive consequences of anger that you've witnessed around you. Uh, Maybe you've personally witnessed in friendships and families and marriages, uh, the destruction of anger in the church and online. Maybe some of you acknowledge that 
you're especially prone to anger, like it is your besetting sin, it is just your particular weak point. But I think for many of us, when we hear that, that you have a serious anger problem, I'm not sure many of us are convinced. You say, me, like it's a serious problem, I'm not sure about that. Other people, I know other angry people, right? but I don't know if I'm like that. For many of us, it's easy to brush it off, to, to minimize it as long as it stays hidden, uh, to chalk it up to just personality, uh, or to justify ourselves, to say that, oh, the other person deserved what I said or deserved what I did, rather than, rather than to acknowledge and to deal with what's actually in our hearts. And that's why Jesus' words are so important for us tonight. Um, last time, just to review, Seichi took us through verses 17 to 20. And these are actually very important verses in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, some commentators would actually say this is the main point of the entire Sermon on the Mount. And so it's that important. And in that passage, Jesus uh, says that he did not come to overthrow or to abolish all that God has said in the Old Testament. Right? He did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Uh, but to accomplish it. And, and contrary to what some, such as the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, might have accused Jesus of, Jesus affirms the authority of the scriptures. In fact, he says that they are the ones, these religious people, uh, they are the ones who are relaxing God's commandments. Right? They're the ones who are not taking scripture seriously uh, through their superficial kind of righteousness. And that's why in last week's passage, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, then you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You need a righteousness that ex- exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And, and, and when Jesus says that, he is not commending their righteousness. He is criticizing it. Right? And, and that, that statement would have sounded like this impossible standard um, in people's eyes. Because for them, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the holiest people. They were the poster children of piety. They were the most religious, the most fastidious. They were the most knowledgeable about the law. They were the ones that people looked to for spiritual guidance. Um, Surely these were the people most approved by God. And yet Jesus says that you need a righteousness that exceeds theirs because he wants a wholehearted and a deep righteousness and not a dead one like they did, like they had. He wants a righteousness that's both inside and out. And so as he continues with the Sermon on the Mount, much of the rest of this sermon is actually going to unpack this kind of true righteousness. What is Jesus talking about here? About this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And specifically for the rest of chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, he illustrates this using six different examples from Old Testament teachings. And, And they're easy to identify because each of them start the same way. Each of them starts with this phrase or this formula where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, right? Or some variation of that. And there's some, actually some interpretive debate over exactly what Jesus is doing here when he says that. But what's clear from last week's passage is that Jesus is not contradicting or changing God's law. He stands in harmony with the scriptures. Um, Jesus will talk about the heart, but in the Old Testament, we see that God has always cared about the heart. He's always cared about both external and internal righteousness. So that's not a new concept. Rather, what Jesus is doing here is he is exegeting. He is clarifying. He is correcting wrong interpretation, a wrong understanding. He's deepening our understanding of what God is saying. And so I think just for us, like one big idea that we can take away from what Jesus is doing here is he's putting himself in the place of authority. He is putting himself as this place of the lawgiver, right? Or basically as God himself. 
Um, we've already mentioned this in previous passages, but uh, just this parallel with Moses, right? Just as Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God and instruction, um, Jesus here as the greater Moses goes up on this mountain and now he offers instruction to his disciples. And not only that, but imagine if you're this Jewish person, you are familiar with the revered and holy scriptures. And all of a sudden, this guy comes along and he says, you have heard that it was said, right? You've heard the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, the scribes, the, the rabbis, the teachers of the law. You've heard their interpretation, their teaching on these things. But I say to you, I mean, who can make a statement like that, right? Like who has the audacity to say that? Well, it's only someone with the authority of God. It's only God himself. And so that's what Jesus is doing here in these six examples. He authoritatively clarifies and communicates the commandments of God. And he illustrates this kind of righteousness that the citizens of his kingdom ought to be characterized by. Okay, that's, that's kind of the big picture here. And for our passage, he starts off by talking about the topic of anger. And so we'll look at this in two parts. Uh, first is the anatomy of anger. Verse 21, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So that's a quotation of the sixth commandment out of the 10 commandments. That's from Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. He continues, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that's kind of just this summary statement of what the Old Testament teaches is the penalty for murder, right? So it's a life for a life. Uh, you, you can find that in passage, or passages like Numbers 35, 31. So that's what, that's what Jesus is doing here in verse 21. And, and before we even get to what Jesus says next about anger, I think it's interesting that the first example that Jesus begins with is this commandment about murder. Right? Think about it. What would you say is the worst possible thing that you could do to someone else? What is the worst possible thing you can do to someone else? And maybe there are a few different crimes that come to mind, but probably for many of us, like one of those things is to murder someone. Right? It is to commit the malicious, unlawful, premeditated act of taking someone else's life. Like that is, in our minds, one of the worst, if not the worst, possible thing you can do. And if you think about even our law, or the law system, judicial system, it acknowledges that. Right? There are serious consequences if you commit something like that. If you kill someone, it's a life for a life. Right? And, and we are aware of that. And that's why we have phrases like, at least I haven't killed anyone. Um, and I know that, maybe you've heard someone say that before, and I know that like, usually it's said in joking, hopefully. <laughs> um, but what, what do they mean by that? Right? What do they mean when someone says, well, at least I haven't killed anyone? Well, they're saying, at least I haven't done that thing. Right? I haven't crossed that line. And if you've ever tried sharing the gospel with someone, uh, with a non-Christian, this might have been their objection, right? They say, well, yeah, well, everyone sins, but it's not like I've ever robbed a bank. It's not like I've ever murdered anyone. I can't really be that bad. I mean, even as Christians, our hearts are sinfully inclined to operate like that. I think about how we often treat sexual sin. And that's the next passage, actually, that we'll look at next time. Rather than heed the warning of a passage like Ephesians 5.3, where it says, among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. What do we do with sexual sin? We ask, well, how far can we go? And we say, well, as long as we haven't slept together. Right? Like, how, far, how far can we push this line? And, and this was how the scribes and the Pharisees approached God's commandments. They say, oh, we've never murdered anyone. And so we haven't violated this commandment, right? 
And so we must be good. God must be pleased with us. And so here is where Jesus drops this bomb in verse 22. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus puts anger on the same level as murder. He says, when you are angry, you are murdering your brother in your heart. Um, In verse 48, verse 48 is kind of the restatement of the big idea of this section. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And I think from that verse, we learn that the motivation, the purpose of our obedience is not just to do more good things and to avoid doing bad things. Right? The purpose and motivation for our obedience is not just for the sake of following commands, but it's to reflect God's character. Right? Our perfection should reflect God's perfection. And so when it comes to this sixth commandment, avoiding murder is not all that God wants. I mean, do you reflect the character of God by simply avoiding this act of the hands? Or do you reflect his character through the attitude of your hearts, through how you treat other people? How you think about other people. After all, if murder is wicked, then isn't everything else that happens in your heart that leads up to that action? Like if you could take an x-ray and just put it against the human heart, what is the difference between a murderer and an angry slanderer? And Jesus says, there's not much of a difference. At the heart, it's the same thing. Matthew 15, 19, he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Now, a couple of words that Jesus uses here. When Jesus talks about insulting your brother, um, that, that word insult that uh, he uses is raka. And that word, uh, you can translate it as like blockhead or like stupid, um, brainless, empty-headed. It's, it's talking about just like uh, you're saying I'm smarter than you. Right? You're putting down their intellect. And then when Jesus says you fool, that word, that word is morose or it's moron. It's speaking to foolishness or uh, calling them a rebel, calling them wicked, or even uh, calling them an apostate. Right? It's saying, I'm morally superior to you. So I'm smarter than you, and I am morally superior to you. That's what you're saying in your anger. And so Jesus says, you're well aware that whoever murders will be liable to judgment, but so is everyone who is angry at and slanders his brother. And not only are you liable to judgment in the human court, but in God's divine court. He says, you are liable to the hell of fire. And so if anger is so serious, right, and yet it can be so subtle, it can be subtle enough where it gets overlooked, where we don't take it seriously, then I think for this first point, it would be helpful for us to slow down and just take a closer look and understand what's happening in our hearts. And so let's just define what we mean, right? What is anger? Uh, Like we saw at the beginning, sometimes it's already hard enough to just identify the different expressions of anger for all of us. Uh, No doubt we've certainly experienced anger, but how do we define what anger is? And so let me just give you a couple of definitions. These are from uh, two different biblical counselors. Robert Jones, he says, anger is a whole person to active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And then David Pallison, uh, in that book we gave out, says, uh, anger is an active stance you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. And hopefully as you look at those definitions, they're pretty similar, right? And they, uh, I think they communicate a couple of fundamental things, right? In the anatomy of anger, there are a couple 
fundamental beliefs or attitudes or things that we're seeing. In our anger, we are saying, I'm against that. And we are saying that this matters, right? And it's not right. I'm against that. And this matters. And it's not right. And this evaluation, this value judgment moves us to action, right? Anger leads to something, uh, whether for good or for bad. And so this, this, I guess, this basic kind of foundational understanding of anger helps us understand the instances in the Bible where we see God get angry. For example, Jesus himself gets angry at the Pharisees on multiple occasions. In Matthew 23, 17, he actually uses that same word, morose, or blind fools, against the Pharisees for their hypocrisy, for their lack of love. Um, or in Mark 3, 1 to 6, it says that Jesus, he looks around at these Pharisees with anger, and he is grieved at their hardness of heart because they are more concerned about testing Jesus about the Sabbath rather than actually having compassion on this guy who had a withered hand in front of them. Anger can be something good. It can be an expression of genuine love. It can be a right response to sin and injustice. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't it be strange if someone, if they were faced with like great sin and injustice in front of them, was just indifferent? If they were just unaffected by it. Or think about a parent who doesn't get angry when a child puts themselves in harm's way. We would look at that and we would say, don't they care? Are you sure that you love your child? Isn't that wrong? How can you not care that they're doing that? We know anger can be good because passages like Ephesians 4.26 say that it's possible to be angry and yet not sin. And that is what Jesus did. In Mark 3, in that same passage, he is grieved, he is angered by the Pharisees' hardness of heart and their lack of love, and yet he responds constructively. He responds redemptively. He, he heals the man's withered hand. For us, the problem is that that's not how our anger often goes. Right? Our anger is often not lead to something good like that. Our anger often goes wrong. And maybe, you know, sometimes it starts out well, like it has the right motive, and even if you're getting angry over something legitimate, we can often respond sinfully. Right? Our, our anger can just be straight up like sinful the entire way. And that's the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about anger that is manifested in things like slander towards your brother, anger that is at the heart of murder. And all of us are guilty of this. But Jesus helps us see our serious problem with clarity and down to the level of our hearts. Now, now why is anger such a big deal? Maybe you're wondering that. On the same level as murder, like really, are you sure about that? Well, let's think about this. If what we're seeing in our anger is I am against that and that matters, then the questions that we need to ask are to who and why, right? That matters to who and I'm against that, why? And usually our answers aren't that that matters to God and I'm against that because it goes against what he wants and it goes against his glory. But usually we get angry because we say that matters to me. And it goes against what I want. It goes against my expectations and my standards and my law and my kingdom. And that's the message of James 4, 1-2. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Did you catch what James says there in those verses? He says that other people might occasion our anger. Certain circumstances, such as when you're hungry or when you're tired, they might make you a little bit more prone to anger. But neither of those things ultimately 
causes your anger. It doesn't cause you to be angry. James says you are angry. Why? Because of your passions. Because you have desires. And these desires have even become demands. It's because you want something and you're not getting it. And so for you, do you get angry and irritated when things don't go according to your schedule? Do you get annoyed when appointments come up unexpectedly or when someone interrupts your time and you have your whole day planned out and all of a sudden like your plans fall through? Do you get angry? And could it be because you demand control? You demand independence. Do you get angry and bitter when someone makes a joke, a very innocent joke at your expense? Or if you're not included as part of this social group, or if you're not invited to this get-together or party, could it be because you desperately desire people's approval? Do you get upset when you feel like others are not pulling their own weight? Like they're not holding up their end of the deal, whether it's with chores or uh, their commitments that you made, they made, or just even just effort into certain things. And it feels like you're putting in more than they are, and you don't get the recognition you feel like you deserve, but someone else, they, they get it, or someone else does something wrong and they get away with it. You get angry at things like that? Could it be because you insist on your own version of fairness, of justice, like it has to be this way? Guys, we often get angry, but we rarely ask why. And instead, we, we often point the finger or we make excuses or we just brush it off as this like uncharacteristic outburst rather than honestly examining our own hearts. But when anger goes wrong, it says something about how we have gone wrong on the inside. It says something about what is the center of your universe. Um, to put it another way, anger is a worship issue because it has to do with what we love. So what is that for you? When you think about just even the moments you were angry this past week, what can you trace your anger back to? Like, what do you feel like really matters? What do you feel like you really must have? The reason why anger is so serious is because you put yourself in the place of God. You crown yourself as king of your own kingdom. And all of a sudden, everyone else, even God himself, are just your subjects. And they just exist to serve you. They just exist to meet your needs, right? It's this sense of entitlement. And when things don't go according to the way that you want, you get angry at God because he directs the details of your lives, not in the way that you want it. And when people don't act the way that you've determined that they should act, just like murder, anger wants to get rid of whoever's getting in your way. Have you ever felt like that before? Maybe you've never killed someone before, but in your heart, have you ever wished that someone was dead? That someone just was not in your way of what you wanted? In sinful anger, you push others down and you lift yourself up as judge, jury, and executioner. You put yourself in the place of God and it consequently distorts how we see other people. Um, In Genesis 9-6, this is right after Noah God, he he affirms the value of human life, and this is what he says. He says, whoever sheds blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. And this is the reason. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So in that passage, he's talking about murder, taking someone's life. He says it's wrong because it takes the life of a fellow image bearer of God. Well, what's interesting is in James 3, 9, this passage is not about murder. It's about our tongue. The words that we say. And it says that when we slander other people in anger, we curse people 
who are made in the likeness of God. Right? Same reason. You were cursing someone made in the image of God. And so how do we do this in our anger? Well, one way is we flatten our perception of others rather than see the whole person as God sees them. Right? In our anger, in those moments where we are angry, all that we see is how we are right and how other people are wrong. And that's why angry people, they take everything personally. Because just like all of a sudden, the whole universe is about them. Like the slightest inconvenience, it was something intentional against them. For example, think about those times when you got angry with someone on the road. Like all that person is to you in that moment is a bad driver, right? Or they're just like, they're a jerk. They're just super mean. And you're not thinking about where they're going. You're not thinking about uh, the kind of day that they might have been having. You're not thinking about the fact that they just, maybe they just legitimately did not see you right on the road. You're not thinking about who they are and the fact that they are an actual person. And of course, this is taking place in the span of like seconds, right? So it's not like you're doing a whole like, you know, personal inventory of them, but you have failed to see them as a fellow image bearer of God. Or think about your messy roommate who hasn't done any of the chores. Hopefully you guys aren't looking around. All they are to you in that moment is an inconsiderate, lazy slob. You're not thinking about how maybe they've just been, you know, really busy recently or anything like that. You don't see them as uh, a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint. You don't see them as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And, and that flattened perception of them suddenly starts to color every interaction you have with them, right? Like literally every conversation, even conversations they're having with other people, you can't help but just look at them like that. Beacon, are you starting to see a little bit more clearly your own serious anger problem? I mean, like I've already mentioned, we may often think that our anger is just short-lived, right? It's just a few cutting words. <clears throat> it's an unkind gesture of the hand. It's just a few seconds of rage. But Jesus helps us to see everything that is happening on the level of our hearts. <clears throat> that we are replacing God. We are forgetting his kingdom. We are putting ourselves as kings of our own universe. We are erasing the image of God in our brothers and sisters. We are wreaking havoc on our relationships. And yet, for Jesus to show us the seriousness of this problem is his mercy. It is his kindness to us. Think about it. If you went to see the doctor and you had this life-threatening issue, you wouldn't want your doctor to sugarcoat it, right? Like, you would want them to tell you how bad it is and how you can treat it right away. And so maybe the first step that you can just take tonight is just to admit and to confess. Right? To say, God, I, I might act one way on the inside, but on the, or on the outside, but on the inside, I recognize the sinful anger in my own heart. In my anger, I have demanded that other people serve me in my kingdom. In my anger, I have failed to love as you have called to me to love. Right? I have failed to see other people as fellow image bearers. In my anger, I have given opportunity to the devil, Ephesians 4.27. Just to confess and say, God, I cannot fix my own heart. And I need your help. I need your grace to change me. I'm on your handouts. I give you guys a few questions that uh, hopefully can help you think through your anger and help you to confess and to describe it to God. I'll just read those four. Uh, I know there's the eight from David Pallison as well. But what do you trace your anger back to? Are you reacting against actual sin? Are you focused on God and his kingdom or on yourself and your own kingdom? 
And is your anger accompanied by other godly qualities and expressed in godly ways? Friends, when we humbly admit and confess, we can be assured that we are turning to a God who is not angry in the same sinful way as we are. Right? We are turning to a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I mean, if you look through uh, just the examples of Scripture, when God deals with sinfully angry people, we see that God moves slowly, when I think often we can move so quickly, so rashly. We see God draw out people's hearts when we often flatten our perception of other people in our anger. You remember what God says to Jonah? You guys know the story of Jonah? Jonah is stewing in his anger because God chose to spare Nineveh, right, his enemies. And God says to him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah's like, yes, like angry enough to die, right? Like so dramatic. But God patiently gives him this object lesson to show him and to teach him about his grace. Or you think of Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, right? Cain gets really angry about Abel's offering. And God asks him this question, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it, right? God asks questions and he says, look, there's this warning of the destructive consequences of your sinful anger. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Just turn, right? And you will be accepted. It's this invitation to turn before it's too late. And that's what Jesus does for us in our passage as well. After diagnosing this serious problem, he gives us a way forward. And this is our second point. The alternative to anger. All right, in verses 23 to 26, Jesus gives these two practical applications for what to do with anger. One of them takes place in the context of church and relationship with another believer, right? He talks about offering your gift at the altar. He says, your brother. And then the other takes place in court. Um, you can say with a non-believer. Right? It says, your accuser while you're going with him to court. But I think both of these examples illustrate the same big idea. And it's this. It's the active and urgent pursuit of reconciliation, the active and urgent pursuit of reconciliation. If there is something that needs to be dealt with, do it quickly. Reconciliation is what overturns this deadly destruction of anger. Uh, verse 23 says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So in this first church scenario, Jesus says that pursuing reconciliation is more important than other things that we might consider important, right? Other things, even such as doing religious activity. And I think if you think about just how he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees, right? Like this would have struck a nerve with them. They were more concerned about outward conformity, doing this religious activity rather than inward transformation. And so Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there and go. And I think we can miss this, but if he's speaking to people who are mostly from Galilee, going back or going from the temple where they would have been offering their gift back home would have been an almost like 80 mile trip by foot one way. Okay, that's like going here to Carlsbad. That's like several days. But Jesus says, do it, right? If you have something you have to deal with, do it. Go the 80 miles. Be willing to go great lengths for the sake of reconciliation, restoring fellowship with your brother. And then verse 25, it says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, 
and you be put in prison, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So in this second courtroom scenario, Jesus says, if your accuser is dragging you to court, then you better deal with it right now while you still can. Right? Because when you get to court, then this whole conflict is going to be taken out of your hands and it's going to be left for the judge to decide. And if you know that you are guilty, like what will holding on to your anger do for you? What will holding on to your grudge do for you? Right? Once you are set before the judge, you will be put in prison unless you have paid the last penny. And so while you still have the opportunity, Jesus says, come to terms quickly. Make it right before you are standing before the judge. Um, notice also, if you're reading carefully for both of these illustrations, Jesus says, if you remember that your brother has something against you, right? If your brother has something against you, he doesn't say not if you have something against your brother. And it's easy to miss that, right? Who's the one at fault? You are. Your brother has something against you. And he's not excluding the instances where we are the ones, maybe we have something against someone else. I think uh, we have to deal with that too, right? The principle still applies. But I think Jesus recognizes our human tendency to be more aware of how others have offended us rather than the ways that we have offended other people. Right? How other people have wronged us rather than the ways that we have wronged others. Now, just to clarify, is Jesus saying that if we are ever aware of anything that someone has uh, against us, that we ought to drop everything and seek reconciliation? Like even the slightest thing, like are we supposed to just drop it and go? I don't think so. That, that's, that's simply be impossible. Um, not to mention conflict is often complex. It's not so simplistic. And I think other passages in scripture help fill out our understanding of what Jesus means here. Uh, Romans 12, 17 to 18, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You catch that phrase? So far as it depends on you. Because in some cases, you will have done all that you can and it no longer depends on you. Right? It depends on the other person. And just maybe this other person just doesn't want to have to do anything with you anymore. Or maybe they just need more time. They're not ready. But sometimes there is more that we can do. Right? Sometimes there is stuff that we can confess and admit and uh, move towards. Like if someone has something against you and you are maybe really at fault for like 10% of it. Right? One way that we can apply this is it means we can take 100% responsibility for that 10%. Right? It's owning up to the ways that we have wronged other people rather than blame shifting, rather than ignoring the problem. The Beatitudes remind us of the inevitability of persecution and suffering as a disciple of Jesus. People will be angry at you just as they were angry at Jesus. But Jesus also says, blessed be the peacemakers. Right? For they shall be sons of God. That's what we're talking about here, being a peacemaker. Having a willingness to move towards others. A desire to seek to make things right when we've wronged other people. Having this eagerness to restore relationships, to close the gap that might exist between us and other people. To undo the destructive damage that anger can do. And guys, this requires humility. This requires a carefulness with our words and our actions. This requires us actually considering and thinking about our interaction with other people. This means we have to be aware of the temptations and dangers of our own hearts, which can be so prone to anger. 
It means laying down our prideful grip on the grudges that we can harbor, right? Or, or laying down this feeling that we think we're in the right. It involves taking certain risks, maybe even suffering wrong in relationships for the sake of loving others. And guys, this plays out in specific action. In specific action. That's the picture in these two scenarios, isn't it? Right? If you find yourself in this situation, do this, is what Jesus says. And it's not like in a formulaic kind of way, right? Because, uh, but he's saying that but because in our anger, this isn't just hypothetical. It's not just abstract. When we wrong someone, we commit real offenses against real people. And so how we seek to deal with it should be specific. It should be tangible, right? The way that we pursue reconciliation, it should be so urgent that it even interrupts what we have going on. Because it is that important. In fact, maybe even right now, God might be bringing to your mind a specific person, a specific relationship, um, a conflict, maybe with a roommate, like we said, or a friend or a family member or another person at church or WCF. And after this message and after small groups are over and you maybe even talk about it in small groups, the temptation for you will, to, will be to just carry on with things as normal. And if we do that, we are just like this example, right? We are just like the person in Jesus's illustration that God brings something to mind, but you just continue on with your normal religious activity. You just continue on with the rest of your day as usual. You ignore Jesus's command and warning about the serious danger of anger and the urgent priority of reconciliation. And so what can you do? Like, like we said in the first point, maybe you just start by confessing your heart of anger to God. And then after that, is there something you can do? Is there a specific first step that you can take? And like I said, relationships and conflict are complex. And so sometimes it's hard to know what that looks like clearly, but maybe your small groups uh, might be a good context to, to seek wisdom and, and talk about that. Well, as we close, I know that this is one of those sermons where it's probably hard to feel so good about yourself by the end of it, right? Like all of us, I think, hopefully we're convicted or just realize there is this anger problem in all of us in our, in our lives. Jesus shows us this serious problem of anger in our hearts. We are guilty as charged. And so what is our hope? Well, Jesus says that if you're at the altar and you're about to give your offering and God brings something to mind to go take care of it, right? And what he's saying there is that your, your sacrifice is not enough to ignore it, right? Your sacrifice is not enough to cover your sin or your anger. You actually have to deal with it. He says, if your accuser is dragging you to court, then come to terms quickly or else your sin is going to condemn you to a debt that you cannot pay. Well, friends, as Christians, we know that there is a perfect and a sinless sacrifice that is enough to cover our sins. That is enough to make us right with God. And as Christians, we know that there is someone who has paid that infinite debt in our place, even when we were guilty. And that person is Jesus Christ. He didn't wait for us to move towards him, but he moved toward us, right? Toward us who were murderous, slanderous, sinners. He moved toward us in love and mercy. And on the cross, he took our liability. He took our judgment upon himself. He bore the perfectly holy, perfectly just wrath of God in our place so that we might be reconciled to him. So that we could stand before the judge, not condemned with this debt that we could not pay but righteous and our debt paid for. This is our great assurance. 
This is our great hope. This is the good news that we go back to over and over again when we fall short, whenever we see the ugliness of the anger in our hearts. And for those of who are in Christ, he takes out our sinful hearts of anger. He takes these dead hearts of stone and he gives us a new heart. He gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that can obey him. Not just following his commands on the outside, but reflecting his character both inside and out. And because of the gospel, it is possible for us not to be the kinds of people that Jesus describes here, but to be the kinds of people that Ephesians 4, 31 to 32 describes. I'll close by reading this. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, just your word. And like we said, we know that sometimes it is hard to hear the real truth about what's happening in our hearts. Uh, it is hard to hear the truth about just how desperately we need you and just how uh, sin has affected our hearts. Uh, but we thank you that we are not left without hope, that we can turn to the gospel and be reminded that, <clears throat> God, you have paid for our sins and that you are in the process of making us more like Christ, of changing hearts so that we can obey you from the heart. And so, Father, I pray now that as we go into your time of small groups, that uh, you would just allow us to have uh, open, honest, vulnerable, fruitful discussion. We thank you, God, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.